Hi everyone, it's Vicki Vasileka from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. There is a designation for um, regenerative medicine through the FDA. And so the part of the 21st Century Cures Act um, provided the regenerative medicine advanced therapy designation. Therapies can get this designation if, um, if, if they meet certain criteria, um, which include being, being defined as cell therapy, therapeutic tissue engineering products, uh, human cell and tissue products, or any combination of products um, that, where, where that, that are modified for, to treat disease. Um, this drug, it, um, the drug has to be intended to also treat, modify, reverse, or cure a serious or life-threatening disease or condition. And also um, there has to be some preliminary clinical evidence that indicates that the drug has the potential to address unmet needs. So th th this is an important designation because like many designations at the FDA, um, this provides um, certain advantages um, and also creates regulatory pathways for products that are, are maybe a little more non-traditional from traditional um, new drug application and biological licensing application processes. To discuss cell therapy, I think it's important to understand the overall process involved. And so with, this starts with leukophoresis of cells at a health system. Um, those cells are then transported um, to a processing facility for the, for this, in, in the case of the commercially available um, uh, cell therapy products, this is usually flown to a single or, or a limited number of sites nationwide for processing. Um, those, um, those T cells are then genetically modified um, to, um, to engage antigens that are expressed on tumor cells. They also will do expansion of cells so that um, there's enough of these cells to um, create a clinical effect. And then the cells are flown back to the um, health system where they are originally harvested um, and are infused into the patient. Um, so today we really see ex vivo gene therapy being used through cell therapies because the, the cells are being modified outside of the body. We have a few commercially approved products, um, but there are many other products that are in clinical trials. Um, and you can see um, some of the different CAR-T and TCRT um, terms that are used for some of these cells here. Gene replacement therapy works by, by combining a transgene and a viral capsid. The transgene is, is added to the viral capsid um, and then is, is, is infused into the patient. It then enters the cells, enters the nucleus. At that point, the transgene exits the viral vector as the, as the vector is attacked by antibodies and, it, and it is eliminated. The viral vector can then be, can then, uh, be converted into an episome or other um, genetic material that produces proteins on an ongoing basis. So leading to the mRNA production and then tRNA and ongoing to production of regular proteins. Um, this is useful. This is most useful for treating monogenic diseases currently, um, as the capacity of the viral capsid is limited. Um, examples today include Veretagene, Neprovovec, and Onasemnagene, Abeprovovec. 
um, which are two gene therapies approved. One for um, the Veretta gene is approved for a rare form of blindness, and Onisemna gene is approved for spinal muscular atrophy. So I mentioned some of the examples of CAR-T as well as some of the examples of viral vector gene therapy. There are some other examples of, um, of, cell, and, of cell and gene therapies that, um, that may be included in, in much of what we're talking about today. So one of those is BCG, um, which is something that many organizations have used in a variety of settings. Um, Talimogene uh, Laheper-Vovac or TVAC um, is, is also approved. Cipula cell T is approved as well, as is Asphacel T. I'll also note that, we, that we're looking at COVID vaccines right now, and it would not be a mid-year 2020 presentation if we didn't mention COVID-19. And so while some of the early vaccines that we expect to see come to market um, potentially by the time of this conference um, are, are from Pfizer and Moderna, um, but some of the other vaccines that are in development um, include uh, a CanSino, uh, the CanSino uh, vaccine, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine. And these do use adenoviral vectors. And so the CanSino, which is also, I think, the J&J &J product, um, uses an adenovirus type 5. And the AstraZeneca product uses a chimpanzee adenovirus. Um, and so these have similar, um, have similar information compared to... Um, have similar issues as related to other gene therapies, as related to gene therapies. Some people will ask, what are the occupational risks of gene therapies? And so in general, um, these risks are probably more limited than people might think from initially hearing about gene therapy. So many people will think that there's a risk of genotoxicity. And in most cases, the risk of genotoxicity is very low. Um, the amount of exposure that someone might get is, is, is very limited, um, but also um, the um, but, but also the, like, the, the, the actual harm that would occur from that gene being given to a healthy person um, is probably fairly limited. Um, infection risk, this is something that some people may be concerned about because of the use of viral vectors. Um, and while certainly if you're using cells from, from another person and who is infected with the disease, you have some of the same risks that you would have with any type of um, cellular therapy that, you know, maybe done historically, blood transfusions, bone marrow transplants, and things like that. Um, the, underlying, um, the, the underlying risk of an infection from the vector is usually fairly low. In most cases, we're using, um, we're using vectors that are not replication competent, um, but certainly in some cases, replication competent disease-causing viral or bacterial vectors can be used. And those are cases where you could see an, an active infection um, if exposed to this in the workplace. Finally, one risk is seroconversion. And seroconversion is where there is an immune response which leads to the generation of antibodies. Um, now, an immune response in and of itself, in most cases, is not a toxicity uh, for most people. But if this would lead to an immune response that would then prevent someone from receiving a gene therapy because now they are antibody positive for a given vector, that could be seen as a toxicity and an occupational risk. So we do a lot of planning for these therapies um, within our organization as we look ahead at realizing that these have a significant impact for our patients, but also can have a significant impact um, um, for our organization financially and operationally. 
Oftentimes they're very high cost. Um, they, may, they often require special handling. There are policies and procedures that we have to develop. Uh, sometimes for each individual therapy, we have to develop some unique policies. Um, there may be some interest from those outside of our organization. Um, certainly we've had media inquiries related to some of these therapies and um, you know, being prepared to address some of those issues is important. Um, many of these therapies are life-changing or life-saving and in some cases urgency is important. So being able to be moved efficiently to take care of patients who need it today is, is an important thing at the time of approval. Um, we also see this as an organizational opportunity. And so I think a lot of times people put this in kind of the risk bucket, um, but sometimes we like to think of this as an opportunity for our organization um, as it gives us an, a, an opportunity to really um, lead as well as um, we are able to find ways to make this a organizationally viable um, enterprise. Um, one of the things we do is we actively engage with manufacturers prior to approval. So the willingness and capacity of many manufacturers may vary, um, but we really do try to get ahead of these as much as we can. Um, in most cases, you can at least meet with a medical science liaison. I, so I think these are some of my first points of contact is finding out who the medical science liaison is that I can speak with, um, because oftentimes they're able to speak a little bit about the product and provide everything that they're permitted to, to um, to health systems. And a lot of times you can kind of garner information about what they're planning to do in terms of um, distribution strategy. Um, sometimes you can find out things about, um, you know, REMS programs that they may need to do, or at least things that could cause them to need a REMS program. And so by, by having some of those discussions up front, that's going to be really helpful for your organization. Um, certainly, you're not going to be able to talk to a rep or um, somebody from the um, payer team usually before approval. And so the medical science liaison is really critical um, in, in de developing these relationships and learning prior to approval by the FDA. Um, we also need to ask about needs from pharmacy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times these companies um, will value feedback and also will will be interested in what we need to know um, so that they can be successful as well. And so by asking the right questions and learning about what we need to do to prepare, um, whether that's equipment, other medications, staff training, um, is really helpful um, in getting ready. And some people will say when to engage. I would say that there's never it's never too early. Um, but, you know, one of the things is also managing your own resources. So we try to select manufacturers based on in organizational impact and try to engage when we believe that there is a high probability of a product coming to market um, in the foreseeable future. Um, another thing is engagement of researchers. So in many of our organizations where we have significant research enterprises, um, our researchers are really dialed in on what's happening in their area. And so you know, by through my engagement with our director of our Center for Gene Therapy, for example, or our director of our Center for Cell Therapy, um, we're, I'm able to um, identify what are some key things that could be coming to market that could be relevant for our organization before they actually um, come to be. Um, we also obviously have a number of clinical trials open at our own organization, and so we can usually get a pulse on when that will come to be um, in the near future. Um, also, one of the things that we try to do is develop and demonstrate competency. So we work on this um, with investigational drugs. We also work on this with, with manufacturers. And by developing and demonstrating competency, we're able to um, be at the table for things before we need to 
before we would otherwise be invited. And so we really try to engage upfront um, and just really ask questions and offer to help. There's a lot of different tools available for following the pipeline. Um, many of you may have them available from you know, various organizations uh, through um, that, that, you're, that you're a part of. Um, and there's some, there's some other products for sale as well. Um, but we really, um, you know, do try to follow what's coming and track PDUFA dates. Um, you know, I think just some key things to know about PDUFA, um, approval decisions usually come near these dates, and these are six or 10 months out from the time that the FDA accepts a new drug application or biologic license application. Um, so six months is an expedited process, 10 months would be the normal process. Um, in the interim, between uh, the time that, they, that a new drug application is accepted and when the product, product is actually approved, um, there are often early access programs um, while the application is pending. And this is an opportunity to become familiar with the product be, uh, before the product is actually approved. But one question that comes up inevitably is, are these therapies even drugs? Um, you know, many of us have kind of our um, our preconceived notions about what is and isn't a drug. And so um, I've put some characteristics of a drug that I think are generally accepted um, for everyone to think about as you think about these therapies. So one is, um, does it have a national drug code? Um, so that NDC that we see on you know, the corner of every label is, um, is one thing that kind of indicates um, that something is in fact regulated as a drug. Um, do we document it on the MAR um, is, is another thing. Um, the, N, the approved under an NDA or a BLA. Now, I will say that BLAs are used for a number of things that are not um, that are not gene and cell therapies. So that is not an absolutely inclusive statement. But many things we do consider drugs, such as monoclonal antibodies, um, are approved under a BLA. Um, do we was it studied under an investigational new drug application? Do we bill it using a HixPix code, um, like a J code? Um, is that is that would be relevant? Um, and then also, are, is it subject to risk evaluation mitigation strategies? Um, prior to um, the development of these therapies, um, everything else that ha ever had a REMS requirement was something that pharmacies across the country would have would have soundly said are def definitively drugs. We also look at how regulators define it. So you can see the Joint Commission uh, defines uh, defines it as prescription medications to diagnose, treat, or prevent disease or other conditions. Um, and, um, and that includes a whole variety of things, which includes, and any product designated by the Food and Drug Administration as a drug, which then leads you to ask, well, what does the FDA say, uh, is a drug? And so, um, the FDA defines it, um, as, defines it as below here, but some key things that I'll pull out are a substance intended for the use, um, in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease. And then also mentioned, they reference biologic products. Um, biologic products are included within this definition and are generally covered by the same laws and regulations. So, um, you know, that leads me to think that we should manage these in the same way that as drugs from a medication management standpoint. So when we think about different therapies, I think um, we have to think about where are these often stored within our health systems. And so um, we're looking, Looking at cell and viral vector therapies, uh, viral vector gene therapies are usually managed in the pharmacy. Uh, and that I think that pharmacies in general have varying levels of engagement with cell therapies. Um, cell labs, on the other hand, are the most common storage location for cellular therapies. 
Um, and it's they're clearly the place that they initiate cell processing following uh, harvest. Um, there may also be um, some storage of these therapies in research facilities in early stage in early stages of research. Um, and I've also heard of them being stored in blood banks. So just being aware that there's different places within organizations that these therapies may be stored. When we think about these different areas of the hospital, there are different core competencies that each of them have. Um, so certainly with receipt of these products, um, that's something that the pharmacy has clear processes for receipt of products. Um, the cell lab may or may not have, have these processes. Um, and the blood bank definitely also has processes for this. Cold storage is something that the other areas besides pharmacy definitely have core competencies with, especially when you think about liquid nitrogen or ultra low uh, freezers. Um, but pharmacy may or may not have that in your organization. And you can kind of see with, with the different things here. Otherwise, pharmacy really has competency with facilities, dispensing, engagement with the clinical team, documentation, and with billing and reimbursement. And these are all competencies that um, some of the other areas may have competency with, but definitely not all of them. So when I think about engagement with, um, particularly with cell therapies, but definitely also with viral vector therapies, I think about varying levels of engagement. And so the high engagement approach is to basically manage it similar to how you would any other drug. Um, this is where it's received and stored in the pharmacy, dispensed in pharmacy and documented on the MAR. And then we bill it as a drug and our pharmacy revenue cycle team is engaged. Um, there are, may also be moderate engagement where some of these things are done by pharmacy, but not all of them. Um, so there may be uh, product checking, there may be pharmacy invo involvement in billing, but not um, throughout all parts of the medication use process. And then there is a low engagement process. And I do think that, the, that this is used some places um, where pharmacy is completely absent from the administrative um, and processing of the therapy. Um, and their only real involvement with these therapies is through clinical pharmacists who follow the patients. And so I, I wanna acknowledge that all of these are possible, um, but I do think that there is an opportunity for pharmacy to really engage at a higher level. And so I, I want to make the case for pharmacy leadership in these therapies. Um, at a minimum, pharmacy should be accountable for ensuring that all components of the Joint Commission Medication Management Standards or whatever deeming body your organization uses are followed. Um, and so, you know, that this is something that whether it's stored somewhere else or stored within the pharmacy, um, the pharmacy is ultimately accountable for how those medication management standards are applied within your organization. Um, I think that pharmacy's experience um, is well aligned for reimbursement and uh, prior authorization of these drugs, um, as the processes may be similar to other therapies where pharmacy is commonly involved. Um, pharmacy has established processes of procurement and reimbursement and staff who are responsible for doing that. Um, and then also we have lots of experience with REMS programs um, that are um, that, that may or may not apply to some of these therapies. I think one thing that's important to also think about is that security of these area of the pharmacy is something that's regularly assessed. Who has access? Um, what types of, of uh, camera monitoring is done in your pharmacy? Those are things that I know in our organization we regularly assess um, with our security team. This may not be something that is commonly as commonly done in other parts of your organization. 
So question nine um, is a genetically modified cell-based therapy is approved by the FDA. It's the first cell-based therapy to be used in your institution. Your cell lab ex expects to receive and store the product, which, which is what is done at most institutions nationally. Um, which of the following functions will the cell lab be able to manage without involvement from pharmacy? So answer A is receiving and storage. Answer B is meeting REMS requirements of the product. Answer C is documenting administration on the MAR. And answer D is billing and reimbursement for the product. Um, so the clear answer here is that the, um, is that the cell lab can manage receiving and storage, um, but they're unlikely to have any of the other core competencies um, underlined on this question. So when we think about cell and gene therapy today, um, we, really are, we really see a fairly small number of these therapies that are FDA approved. They're used fairly infrequently, generally less than daily, even at the largest centers. Um, there is certainly greater use at academic medical centers and at pediatric hospitals um, than other sites. Um, and that's off, they're often affiliated with specific researchers. But as we look ahead, the future is coming. And um, this is a quote from Scott Gottlieb and Peter Marks um, that they put in a FDA publication um, in early 2019. They said, we anticipate that by 2020, we will be receiving more than 200 INDs per year, building upon our total of more than 800 active cell-based or directly administered gene therapy INDs currently on file with the FDA. And by 2025, we predict that the FDA will be approving 10 to 20 cell and gene therapy products per year. So this is something that you, your, your facility may do very little of or not do any of today. But I, I think that this is something that you need to be prepared for um, as we look ahead at the coming years. And as we think about this, I always say, consider the impact. Um, what if we could prevent symptoms from some neurodegenerative diseases from ever developing? Um, what if we can provide clinical resolution of symptoms for diseases like hemophilia and sickle cell disease? Uh, what if we can allow early one-time non-surgical cancer treatments um, that eliminate the need for months or years of chemotherapy? Um, and what if we can provide uh, clinical resolution for genetic immunodeficiencies? What's the impact of that for patients, for society, for your hospital, and for your department? And I think that there's a huge opportunity for all of us to lead this really meaningful effort forward. And so that's kind of the call to action that we leave you with today. We do acknowledge that there are challenges of scale and that organizations have the opportunity to prepare for this um, now rather than waiting. Um, cold storage is, is definitely one that we hit on earlier in the presentation. Um, it, some of these may be time consuming and so having dedicated BSCs may be necessary in order to do these, especially if you have significant volume. And as some of these therapies are approved, you may see a bolus of demand, um, you know, for some of these diseases that are uh, among the more common diseases that gene therapy can be used to treat, you may have dozens of patients eager for therapy immediately. Um, ultimately, we need sustainable processes and ways that we can um, do this in a way that is beneficial for multiple service lines um, and be, be available to make it happen for all of those areas. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. 
It's features and content like this that make the ACHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.